Hi, everyone. This is Andy, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm really excited for the mini series we have this week on venture capital investing. You know, I've done a lot of angel investing in my life. I'm a limited partner in one VC fund, but I'm hungry to learn more. And the roster of guests that we have lined up this week, uh, they were really so generous in sharing their insights and knowledge on VC investing. So I really hope you enjoy this mini series this week on VC. Now, if this show has helped you at all, I have one ask of you, which is could you log on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and review. It doesn't take much time. It helps spread the word to other investors and entrepreneurs, and it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much and enjoy the miniseries. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. Today, we're talking about venture capital. We're doing a little bit of a mini series here on the show about venture capital. And I'm really excited for this because honestly, it's a, it's a huge space in the alternatives category. But for a lot of reasons that we're going to talk about today, it's it's more of an opaque space, especially for individual investors. But there are some very unique companies that are honestly revolutionizing this space. So I'm very excited that joining me today is Dave Thornton, founder of Vesta. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Very good to be here. Thank you for having me. So I know we have a lot of ground to cover today. And um, I want to start by just saying I love what you're doing at Vested because almost every company in the alternative space say, we're here to revolutionize alts. We're here to revolutionize this. We're here to revolutionize that. It's pretty rare that that is actually, you know, true. Like that, the, you know, that the thing that the company is doing actually kind of lives up to the theory. But when I heard about Vested and I learned how it worked and it's, it's kind of unique. So we're going to go into the whole story. I, I realized that this actually is changing venture capital, but before we go into how the platform works, I'm curious uh, on your background, Dave, how, how did you get in to the venture capital space? How did you get into the alternatives industry? Fell a little bit backwards. I have an all over the place background, which actually does coalesce into what I'm doing invested, but it won't seem that way until I kind of walk through it. So um, my undergrad was uh, a joint between uh, the business school of Penn and computer science. So I could could go two directions there. The first job out of school was at Microsoft and apologies to Dean Perone, who's still one of the best bosses I've ever had, but I did not want to do software development after spending a little bit of time doing software development. So I went over to the other side of the joint degree and I helped set up an internal hedge fund within Citigroup back when banks were allowed to have internal hedge funds. So uh, me and a couple of traders from a, one of the best prop trades at Citi at the time, um, built out the same apparatus, but with other people's money. And I was responsible for writing the trading models and the risk models and automating as much of the back office stuff, daily production of NAVs, for example, uh, as I could. Um, went to law school after that. I actually act completely accidentally uh, timed the great financial crisis perfectly. Uh, went to law school in 2008. Um, and then after law school, uh, jumped into the entrepreneurial world. So Dave, I got to stop you. Yeah, yeah. There's ahead. so many, I know so many entrepreneurs who went to law school, including one we're really close to, he's super successful, smarter than me. He's made a fortune. It's funny how many 
you know, people I know went to law school and then like are immediately like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to practice law. I knew that I, so I went there with the bad, I went to law school with the best of intentions. Um, and then about halfway through so a year and a half in, I was pretty sure that I didn't love the people that I was in law school day to day with. Like I had my group of friends, but for the most part, the ethos of raising your hand to have your voice heard, not being data driven when you're making your arguments, it kind of killed me slowly. And that was most of the law students. Uh, and so I, I feel like there's a joke there, but yeah. Go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I was just my brother, I'm from a family of lawyers. My brother found a practice that he loves and I could have overreacted a little bit less to law school, but about halfway through, I kind of decided in a very entrepreneurial band-aid rippy type way that I wanted out. So my then fiance, now wife, who had come down to law school uh, from New York down to DC with me, um, she made me finish. <laughs> so I did. I did my best. I, I very coherently explained the sunk cost to her. And I even mimed like lighting a hundred grand on fire that we did not have to, uh, yeah. but she was having none of it. So I finished law school, but then no bar and no practice. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Okay. So you went through law school. So then how did you, how did you back into fall into venture capital from there? So in a sense, I jumped into the startup world and the startup world is the world of venture capital from one angle. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the first business that I started, we did a number of very cool things and I could probably talk for too long about all them, none of which are really related to best except this one. From my time at the old city hedge fund, we ended up building an illiquid asset pricing model, uh, a subsequent version of which is currently algo trading a $300 million book at a big brand name bank right now. Yeah. Uh, so put a pin in that because that comes back to vested in a second. Uh, shortly after that business, we left Manhattan and came down to South Florida where most of the grandparents were because we had kids of a certain age and we needed as much help as we could get. And I started and sold a healthcare analytics company. And in the process of uh, being the CEO, issuing stock options to the employees, and then ultimately watching those stock options manifest in the acquisition, I gave my employees some pretty bad advice on a, uh, from a tax perspective. I knew that I knew that going stock for stock in a private company acquisition was tax-free, but I didn't appreciate that the mechanical option exercise on the way to going stock for stock was not taxable tax event. <laughs> so I, it, it worked out perfectly for the people that it most harmed. But in that year, there was a uh, price is right problem where people got stuck with the tax bill. And I kind of just had this moment where I was like, all right, if somebody with my background is screwing up employee stock options, I'm sure most employees are screwing up employee stock options. And that, that kind of, that's the basic thesis for vested is that startup employees have this very valuable asset and they don't really know what to do with it. They don't tend to think about it the right way, or they think about it the right way, but in a hurry under distress. And so vested was begun with the idea that startup employees should know more about their equity so that when it comes time, they can do something smart with it. So that's, that's the long path to vested and then vested itself has a couple paths within it that have led us to the fun product that we, uh, that we produce right now. Sure. And you know, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of the Genesis story of vested because now I'm thinking because you're talking about, you're an entrepreneur, you build a startup, then you end up exiting a successful exit and almost definitionally, anytime you do that the first time, 
you're learning as you go. You've never done it before. And then afterwards you're like, oh, wow, I know so much now that I didn't know at the beginning. And that's, that's literally the same thesis why we started AltsDB. It's just like this, you know, different lessons, different angle, but it's just like, we sold a company to private equity and we, we did it a couple of times, Jimmy and I, and afterwards we're like, what's going on here with this private equity? Why are, <laughs> why are we selling businesses? We should be buying business anyway. So it's just funny because there's so much of that kind of knowledge. It's like, I'm a computer programmer. I'm working at Google or I'm working at whatever tech startup, the Google of 2020. And I have these stock options that are worth a lot, but I've never done this before. I've never worked for a company that IPO'd before, I've, you know, and and then you have all of this portfolio concentration risk. Actually, it's even worse than that. I have the Ill, illiquid asset, highly concentrated in this company that I also work for. Yeah, yeah, they, that you spend eight to 16 hours a day working at. Like you are as levered to this company as you possibly can be. That's absolutely right. So I, I, I kind of know where, I can see where the puck is heading here. So Dave, I'll actually punt this to you. I want to talk about the venture capital industry, but maybe we should go a little further then. How vested is helping these employees who are working at startups? Because you talked about, you kind of did this transaction, you had the successful exit, but you made mistakes, which we all do in our first transaction. I mean, literally every person does. So, But you learn from that and it kind of made you realize there's a need to provide liquidity or even valuation or all probably all kinds of services kinds of stuff, yeah. to, to folks working at these startups. I, I think the first thing is just understanding what it is that you own. So uh, startups tend to be cash constrained relative to the Googles and the Facebooks now metas of the world. And so they undercomp in cash and they overcomp in stock options. And Stock options are not stock. It's like the very first thing that people don't typically understand when they're getting their equity grant. So uh, one, understand that these are stock options. They tend to vest over time. They're not all yours right now. You have to stay for a while, um, especially towards the end of your first vesting cycle, which is usually going to be your most meaningful grant. Um, should you want to leave the company? Should you consider your tour of, tour of duty tied to like your first uh, your first vesting schedule? Um, you will inevitably run into the fact that 95%, maybe more of startups uh, require that you exercise your options within 90 days of leaving, mm. which is just a brutal uh, and very distressing situation. All of which comes from the fact that most people don't appreciate that they had to buy their stock in the first place, that stock options are not stock. So we started out with just a whole bunch of educational content um, about the difference between stock and stock options, about the various types of stock options, about all the taxable issues associated with stock options. Uh, we also built a couple cool tools. So one was uh, an employee stock option fairness calculator that kind of helps you think about your grant relative to other similarly situated employees. Uh, mm -hmm. So it kind of like helps you negotiate on day negative one. Um, we built a uh, kind of a, a way to track your grants over time. So not just like hitting vesting cliffs, but also understanding the value of your stock uh, or the underlying stock as you're at the company and things are happening, like new rounds are getting raised or competitors are doing things. Um, 
we built an outcome simulator, which is one of the earliest tools that got used uh, quite a lot, which is just a tool that helps you dream big. If your company exits for a billion dollars, like what's it worth to you? Mm -hmm. uh, and those were kind of the, the content and the tools were what we had initially armed the employees with to just be a little bit smarter on day 300 than they were on day one. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you think about what they own, it's options, not equity, but an interest, let's say in a private, you know, fast growing private company, it's the type of investment that would normally be owned by a family office or an ultra high net worth investor, yeah. someone who's very sophisticated, has the ability to, you know, deploy a million here, a million there, and not worry about it, have all these private illiquid investments, because um, they know how to manage it, they know how to be diversified. Whereas if you're this employee, you're getting this one random, it's not random, but it kind of is, <laughs> you know, and, and mathematically it is, right? Yeah, because yeah, right. we know that most venture-backed companies don't have successful outcomes, but then a few have very, very successful outcomes. Um, you know, whatever is it a power law? What, what's the mathematical? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah commonly sure. Commonly referred to as the power law. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the need for education and there's a, a information asymmetry here. Huge, right? Yeah. And a lot of the founders of these types of companies, like if if I go out and start another company tomorrow, and and grow that to exit. That'll be my fifth startup that I can grow to. Like I've done it before. It's not my first rodeo. I kind of know what to expect. Every time you do it, it's a little different versus if you're an employee and you're not an entrepreneur and you haven't been down this process, you know, kind of like what you're implying, you don't even know what your options are worth. And even, even honestly, even calculating them at a certain exit, like if we exit for 500 million bucks, what is this option worth? Even that can actually be super hard. Like I've been in situations where like three finance nerds with pocket protectors are trying to figure it out and they can't even figure it out. I'm like, well, how the heck do you want me to figure it out? You know, it's hard because the investors that come in at the various rounds all tend to have different terms, some of which are antagonistic to each other, almost all of which are antagonistic to the common stock and like figuring out how it all fits together at a, at a presumed exit valuation is something where at a minimum, you need to have all the information to start getting out, you know, moving into your pocket protector and getting your calculator out. And so most most startup employees don't have any of the relevant information. So they couldn't do the calculations even if they wanted. Let's put a pin in that. Yeah. Right. So here's here's we have this kind of issue with employees at these venture backed companies. They have options. If they leave the job, they may have been a liquidity crunch to exercise them or whatever. There may or may not be a secondary market. All these problems that they're facing. I want to put a pin in that and now zoom out to the investor side of things. Yeah. So at the Alternative Investment Podcast, we cover all alts, right? So a big part of that's real estate, um, private equity, venture capital is a huge category, but traditionally venture capital has been kind of the playground of the ultra wealthy and institutional investors, right? So like a lot of private equity, real estate funds, for sure, they'll take, if you want to be an LP, you can write a check for a million bucks yeah. or, or, or a lot of them, certainly 250,000. And increasingly there are private equity, real fund, real estate funds where you can invest a hundred thousand, sometimes even 50,000 if you're an accredited investor. So Honestly, at almost any end of the spectrum of accredited investor, from high net worth to very high net worth to ultra high net worth, family office, 
you can invest in private equity. There's plenty of different offerings. With venture capital, that's not really the case, is it? No, it's becoming more the case as time marches on and shops like us are trying to put out products that make it more accessible, but it has definitely not historically been the case. I mean, so you've got some shops that are uh, some venture capital funds that are closed to new investments. So uh, Sequoia is an example where they've, right. they've, they've been closed to uh, all but their early LPs for a long time. Um, you've got other venture capital funds that are now so big that it's not worth it for them to take small checks and attempt to do fundraising and all the hand-to-hand -hand combat that is associated with it. So like you'll see minimums like $10 million mm -hmm. just, just to get in the door. Um, there's also separately from being able to get in in the first place, even if you had the wherewithal, there's the risk associated with getting in. So uh, a stat I'm sure you've heard before, uh, but last funds top quartile venture managers only tend to be next funds top quartile venture managers 49% of the time which is worse than a coin flip that should be shocking uh <laughs> yes. yeah. um and so there's a significant amount of risk that you take in any one fund in any one vintage even if you can get in uh and these portfolios that are getting uh, created by a single fund in a single vintage tend to have like 15 to 40 positions, which feels like a lot, but most of them are going to zero and it's yeah. not a lot. <laughs> uh, so, so this is a space just based on what you've told me so far. I either need to be CalPERS, like literally CalPERS. I need to be a giant institutional pension fund or maybe one step down from that, but because I need to be able to write a, a one, a, you know, one, a five, a $10 million check, but I need to be able to do that to five or seven or 10 funds yeah. in each vintage. And then I need to do it vintage after vintage. So that's really, that's not even like a shared family office. That's, that's a huge family no, office. It, it, or, you, you've got to be able to take risk is the short version. And, and that is, that is directly related to how much capital you might be able to deploy into the asset class. So basically the whole asset class, if if you're not among the world's largest family offices, it's it's almost been closed off to individual investors. It doesn't matter, accredited, very high net worth, doesn't matter. You're realistically, you're pretty much locked out. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Historically. And even, if, even if you're not locked out, you're definitely locked out from the places that you would otherwise want to be. So like you can find your local VC managers, but now you've got to learn how to diligence them and mm -hmm. figure out what the difference is between them and the Bessemers and, and the Kleiners of the world. And so like you're definitely locked out from the top tier most of the time and maybe locked out from the second tier based on kind of who will pick up the phone for you. And at emerging managers, it must be said, sometimes they're going to have really good ROI, really high returns. But to your point, you have to diligence them. You, and then you have, to, yeah, you have to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. And, and it's a chicken or egg problem. If you've never been in VC and if you've never gone through that process, like how would you know how to pick amongst your local five or 10 managers? So, okay. We've done a good job, I think, of talking about two problems, right? The one problem that employees face in venture-backed startups where a lot of their comp is weighted towards these options and they may be in a liquidity crunch or have a hard time valuing them or whatever. The other problem we've identified, this is an opaque asset class that's very hard for even high net worth investors to access. So I, Dave, I'm throwing you a fastball <laughs> on the plate. 
to describe what your platform does because we, we were talking before we were recording. I was like, this is so interesting because it doesn't solve one problem. It actually solves both problems. Yeah, and and it's, I, as we were also talking before the recording, if I told you that we started out to solve the second problem, I'd be lying. So it's kind of important to understand what the evolution of Vested was from the educational content platform to the fund management platform that it is uh, today and how we monetize today. So out of our initial user base, of all the folks that had showed up for the free content and the free tools, we started to feel this steady drumbeat of people that were asking us for money. And at the time it was like, what is going on? We very clearly, very explicitly do not provide money <laughs> for this stuff. Like, why are you even, why would you think it's a reasonable question to ask us? Um, and we started looking at it and it was entirely folks who were in that 90 day post termination exercise window that I mentioned where they left a job for whatever reason, they're going to grad school, Google poached them. Maybe there was a small layoff and all of a sudden they found out for the first time, usually that they had 90 days within which if they didn't find the money to both buy their stock and pay the related option exercise taxes, they were going to lose the primary form of their compensation for the last on average three years. So these folks were coming to us and then we looked a little bit harder and we were like, there's got to be a market for this. Hmm. And we found out that there was a market for a select small set of people in this position. So if you are the SVP of Stripe leaving after a five-year tenure and you have like a two to $5 million option funding need, there are four or five shops that'll fight over that deal. But if you were the mid-level customer success rep at Stripe that left on the same day and you needed like $45,000, nobody cares and nobody will give you the time of day. Similarly, if you were leaving an earlier or a mid-stage company, the kind of companies that are just hard to diligence as an outsider because they haven't done enough in the world yet, hmm. nobody will give you the time of day. So we put two and two together. We were like, all right, smaller ticket option funding needs and everybody leaving early in mid-stage companies, that's that's probably 99% of startup employees by count. Yep. There aren't too many senior execs at Stripe. Uh, and what we ended up realizing was we could probably support them and be the only liquidity provider, help solve their problem and help them own most of their shares uh, at great prices, because you tend to be able to get great prices when you are the only liquidity provider in a market. And we ended up building a fund product that is kind of like the anti-VC fund product, except for the fact that it provides an incredible entree to the asset class, which is rather than trying to be one of those winner picking machines and per the 49% number, not everybody, people think VCs are winner pickers. I have read a lot on this and I don't think most of them are. Um, we were instead going to get rid of the companies that have clear red flags, but try to support the employees from the remainder of the companies. Do it little bits at a time, $45,000 at a time, $80,000 at a time, and at the kind of discounts that allow us to feel comfortable uh, deploying that capital. And we've effectively created kind of like a VC index fund. We're helping employees from companies across all stages and all sectors, and it's an index fund at a discount because all of the positions that we're putting on come with the come from the attendant distress that I was just describing. And this particular fund product is kind of like the most risk adjusted way to dip a toe into the asset class. Like we had a $25 million fund previously that had 250 positions in it. 
no more than 1% concentration in any one name. You can kind of write one check, wow. get exposure to the hypothetical median of the VC asset class and kind of call it a day for your asset allocation. So that was well, that's it's, the it's, way in which- It could theoretically be better than that though, in the sense that, and I want to talk about the discount. I, I think mm -hmm. that's an important component here. And and I want to be clear because, I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know like what percent discount it is or, you know, because a lot of times when you value something, when you have a valuation, the context is super important. So yeah. the re retail price, so the wholesale price, yeah. do you have time to, do you have time to, you know, wait and, and re receive a maximum price or, you know, rush, you need to sell this tomorrow. So I think, as you said, when you're the only liquidity provider in town or you're the, or even just the easiest, right? It's, it's interesting, totally different markets, but you know, cash for gold or, or whatever. There are so many different markets where people will just say, you know what? I have this asset. I need liquidity quickly. I know that I'll get a discount from this liquidity provider, but I need the convenience. I need the speed. I need the reliability of knowing that I can trust the buyer on the other yep. side to say what they're going to do. And also, I think it has to be said, and you know, it, with what your firm does, these small transactions, there's a fixed cost. There's, you know, labor, transaction costs that are associated with just servicing and completing smaller transactions. So what is the discount though? Because you're talking about like a diversified fund, but I'm thinking, well, it's in theory, it could be better than that because you have the ability to get the diversified fund, which is, is getting shares at a discount, right? Yeah. From, from, from a fund returns perspective, it should be quite a bit better than your than your average heavily diversified fund specifically because of the discount. Um, the discount is typically relative to the last price that investors paid. And in this market, if investors paid their last price a year and a half ago, that's probably too high. So there's a bunch of context on every deal, but uh, yeah. the way, the most important thing to understand is we're kind of a secret data machine. We talk to lots of employees across lots of startups. We have access to, the kind of data uh, at scale in the VC asset class that is not readily available to most investors. And as a result, we can do a pretty good job figuring out what a company is worth, what companies are probably going to zero and taking a discount relative to our expectation. Now, Dave, are you licensing that? I'm like, that sounds like a whole other business line for, for your firm. We That's are going to use it for our own proprietary purposes for as long yeah. as the fundamental arbitrage that allows this strategy to be really attractive exists. And at some point, I have no doubt that we are going to flip over like BlackRock did with Aladdin and start selling it to everybody else. Uh, but we'll see. <laughs> I appreciate your candor. You're, you're using your powers for good, not for evil, right? So yeah, yeah that's right. And, and, and to your point, uh, on the discount side, we're helping people own their shares. This is not just liquid cash in pocket on the way out of a job that we're providing. We're specifically giving them money to buy the shares that represented the biggest form of their compensation in their prior job. And people are holding on to 50, 70, 90% of their shares because of the financing that we're able to provide. And, mm. and otherwise they'd be going up in smoke. So we, we, do, we do think that we're doing a real service here and that the discount is in service of expanding that service. So, okay. Um you know, I'm more from the investor point of view, right? Um, I'm not working in a tech company. God willing, I never will, you know, be a software developer. <laughs> um, I don't think I'd be a very good one. Um, so from the investor point of view, 
yeah. I am an investor. I'm interested in the platform. How does this work? You know, it, are are is every investor who comes onto your platform are they all buying the diversified portfolio? Are there opportunities to select individual investments if you want to? Like, how, how does it work? At, at the moment, we're offering a fund product that kind of rolls like it. We always need money for the next employee. And so yep. we will always have an open fund. Um, the intention for the fund product at the moment is to be a diversified basket of VC at a discount. And so an investor in that core product will be getting access to the entire portfolio. However, um, because we're so diversified, because we have such con such low concentration limits in any given fund, Anytime a bigger deal than we can handle in a fund comes in, there are co-invest opportunities mm. because if somebody comes in and needs a million dollars from us and we can only do 250,000, they don't want to take 250,000 from us and then go on to somebody else for 750. They want to get their entire deal done in one place. So for us to have the chance to do the 250 into the main fund, we basically need to go to our LPs and our co in our potential co-invest population and say, we've got to come up with the other 750. So the main product is the diversified VC, but it kind of comes with free co-invest opportunities that are based on larger deals coming in than we can handle. Dave, I have a great idea for you. I won't, yeah. I won't even, I'm not even going to charge you for this golden idea. Well, it reminds me of uh, Warren Buffett, right? Because the, you know Berkshire, they own insurance companies because of the float, yeah. because it's just they have this cash cushion and then they buy these other you know capital intensive businesses. So it sounds like, vested kind of needs a float they can you you kind of need that buffer of liquidity because if someone comes along and, and says you know i have uh you know five million worth of stripe stock and i'll sell it to you at a very attractive price you don't want to be turning them away or saying well we'll take a tranche of 500 you'll have you know you want to be able to bite off that that the whole, whole thing if we can yeah so how do you manage i, I guess the co-investment opportunities do you, but do you have like any issues kind of matching demand for liquidity versus demand from investors? Like have those been pretty even on, on both sides of the equation to date or, or are, are you, do you need one more than the other right now? Like do you have an excess of one and a scarcity of the other? There is an absolute excess of deal flow right now. And I'm not talking about deal flow of specific sizes, but if, if people leaving startups is what produces deal flow for us. And right now, even healthy VC-backed companies are laying off 10 to 20% of their workforce for the expectation that they're not going to raise in the next couple of years and they need to be able to make it through. So we have a ton of deal flow piled up and substantially less proportionally capital. Like I've, a $25 million fund wouldn't even put a dent in the amount of total. Well, let me stop you right there. And I'm a, I'm a shark, man. I'm merciless. Does that mean as an investor, if I invest now into this current fund, I'm potentially getting better value more yeah, of it. Actually, so it, it's a good trade in any environment because there's uh, an amount of distress that's created by the folks that are coming to us where we're always buying at, at a pretty good price. However, in the current environments, because of our concentration limits in the fund, maybe before we might have had zero or one or two or three deals come to us from the ex-employees of a given company. Mm -hmm. Now we might have 10 at a time. And we can only do one or two or three because we can't do too much in any given name. And so the thing that we would do as a fund manager, we would take our 10 deals, sort by price, do the best one or two or three. And so just to put that into numbers, in the last fund that we ran, we were buying at an average of a 51% discount. And mm -hmm. currently we're buying at about a 70% discount. 
And that's that's purely a function of the market environment that I just described. And that's a 70% discount to the company's previous rounds. Yeah, that typically other- to the last round. So, so that number by itself doesn't tell you the full story. It's got a bunch of variability within it. Old yeah. rounds, 70% off doesn't mean much. New rounds, it means a lot. But um, but the average moved quite a bit is the point. That's a pretty substantial discount because you have to think, here's what I'm thinking. Another investor who is probably smarter than me or is at least more well-connected, maybe they're not smarter than me, but they're somehow managing a giant VC fund. with. Yeah, billion. well, no matter what, they got access to the company's management team, which is the one thing that you will never have access to unless you're an inside investor. So, And, and I know that they just bought at essentially three times what I'm buying at. If it's a 70%, dis- like if it was a, if it was around for 450 million, you know. Yeah, you're, okay. you're effectively buying into common stock at $150 million valuation. So it's, it's worth noting from our prior uh, thread that yeah. the common stock that we're getting our exposure to, which is typically uh, what the employees have or have access to, is not worth what preferred stock is worth. It's usually worth a, call it a 20 to a 30% discount from preferred okay. stock. But yeah. we're still getting it way lower than that. And so your major point holds, which is that we're buying stuff for lower than the equivalent that you'd expect to buy it at relative yeah. to what some smart VC just paid. I understand. So the common stock that, that your funds would be holding par value would be something like 70 or 75% of the previous valuation because that yeah, previous right. valuation would have been basically preferred yeah. preferred round series B or whatever. And and what we'd be investing is common, but still, then if there's a seventy percent discount, sounds yeah, to me that there's there's still plenty of room, between, plenty of buffer between what this type of asset is theoretically worth on average and where we're buying. So walk me through then the funds. So these are diversified funds. I understand there's a like CoGP. There's these other kind of one-off opportunities, but the diversified funds, those are open for a period of time and then they're closed. So so vested almost has like its own vintage, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, we we. We don't have vintages the way that a traditional VC will have vintages, and those are usually yearly vintages. We'll actually have more frequent vintages than that because there's a lot of deployment to do. So we might have, uh, if, let's say we continue to do $25 million funds, we'll probably be uh, deploying for a handful of months, and then we'll need to have the rest, the next fund started, deploy for a handful of months, the next fund will need to be started. So it'll be kind of like a set of rolling funds. So what fund are you on right now? It is fund three right now. Fund three. Okay. And um, what about holding period? Because I'm, you know, with all alts, that's one thing I kind of coach everybody. I love illiquid alts. Yeah. You know, honestly, there, you know, there's more money to be made ultimately in illiquid investing than there is in liquid investing because there's an illiquidity premium. But you got to understand the illiquidity. And as an individual investor, really important that individual investors understand their liquidity needs and each product that they're investing in. So how does the liquidity work? Is it a five-year, 10-year hold? So in in our case, it's a five-year fund. Uh, and it's got a pretty interesting distribution profile on paper, current markets notwithstanding, where like all of the exit events are just chilling out for a year and change. Um, but the, the general idea is uh, we're not reinvesting with our capital. So if we put out 250 positions, you're going to see 10 or 20 go liquid over the next year randomly. Like the company that I sold, 
16 months after our seed round, we were opportunistically acquired by one of our vendors. That mm -hmm. happens all the time. Nobody writes about it. But like the point is these liquidity events kind of kick themselves off more frequently frequently than you would expect, especially. And, and those are like, those are like the, can, can I use a baseball analogy? Those are the singles and the doubles, right? Like for and every. Right. And, and if you're buying it, like, if, if preferred stock is worth a dollar and we're buying common stock at 30 cents and on a good exit, preferred and common exit at the same price and it exits for $3, mm -hmm. like we just 10 X. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't take much like a single or a double can 10 X a position. For so us. that's the, so Dave, that's, that's a difference, I guess, also from the preferred it's the higher valuation, but, but that's also a difference, like a double, you know, hitting the double for fun, like yours. That's awesome, right? Because it's just like yeah. we want to be in the money. We want to be in the money enough to where the common and preferred ideally are both getting that same, you know, the same same deal exit. on exit. Yeah. But we don't. You don't need a unicorn because when you're you're buying in at a discount and you're diversified, th there's already inherently good economics. So if you can just consistently hit enough singles and doubles, yeah, it's, if it's if all we did was hit singles, this would be a three x fund. Like it's, it's, it, it, there's still plenty of froth in the market and some companies are going to go to zero that weren't in our, you know, training set because the training set came from the good times as we were preparing for the trade. But like real, really your point is right on. We don't need home runs. We are not the typical, we will benefit from home runs because we're playing in the same asset class that VCs tend to play in. And it's a power law asset class where Facebook's our thousand X's. But if all we had was a series of singles, our products would perform very well. So you mentioned that it's kind of like an index fund, but you know, it's, it's the Russell 1000 or, yeah. or whatever, but that you're also weeding out almost like you're weeding out some pink sheets, some penny stocks, yeah, you know, some, right. uh, some kind of shady, shady listings here. So let's, let's talk about that. So you're not, you're kind of, you're not necessarily diligencing everything like an actual VC firm would, right? You're, but you're kind of doing something in between. Yeah, we're doing something in between. The biggest, we're, we're doing a thorough job with, and it's a very data-driven and automated thorough job, but the big thing that we're not doing, because how could we possibly, given how many hours there are in the day, mm -hmm. is sitting down with each company's management team and having a conversation and kind of assessing the quality of the leadership of the early stage companies. Be However, because we're because we're about to buy $40,000 worth of stock options. Right, yeah. So. That they're not going to give us the time. Yeah, we're not going to spend the time. Um, but we do have uh, a whole bunch of other machinery for weeding out, um, yeah, you know, the the biggest problem type companies. So we have access to financial performance data for about seventy five percent of the VC asset class. It's really easy to ask basic questions from that data, like is this company profitable? Did their revenue grow last quarter? Um, and we've built a pricing model around some of that data. Uh, we're looking- Can we use like some kind of non-traditional algorithm to find out if all the employees are, if there's like a smoothie bar and a bunch of foosball machines. Uh, you know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a non-traditional <laughs> algorithm called that company loses money. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, go on, go on. Um, so we've also taken a look at financing trajectory and financing terms. So this is basic stuff. Like is the company- Well, this is so interesting to me. This is almost like- this is almost like machine learning due diligence. Yeah, it it's kind of like the human being who's trying to qualitatively judge. There's probably just an algorithm and a set of metrics that can do just as good of a job, if not better, at spotting the startup that's going to be bankrupt in 24 months. 
I think that really, really good, thoughtful investors are likely to always do a little bit better with the same underlying data set than a machine learning algorithm is going to do. But like literally we're using a machine learning algorithm. Like the, when I mentioned in that first startup that we built in a liquid asset pricing model uh, that's algo trading right now, we built a pricing model with the data, with the data feeds that I'm going to finish describing to you. And it's doing the same thing. Well, Dave, let me push back on that just a little. Um, I mean, you know a lot more about venture capital than I do, but you know, uh, we we were talking about managed futures in liquid alts on the show and um, with Andrew Beer. Okay. And so his point was with these algorithms, you know, they'll kind of play the odds kind of stupidly, like they're they're like a dumb computer, right? Like they have a lot of computing power, but they're dumb. And I'm thinking even a really smart analyst, a really smart investor, we can all get, I don't want to say hoodwinked, but like you can meet a founder and be like, I love her. She's fantastic. I have to get in on that deal just because. So I, I feel like those those human things, they can definitely help. Like I'm, I'm not like Warren Buffett is smarter than the Warren Buffett computer version of Warren Buffett. So there are exceptions. But I think just as often, if not more often, human beings fall into human traps, you know? I do definitely agree with that. And the downside of meeting with the management team is exactly what you're saying. You, you, you'll pattern match without meaning to against the founders that you've seen and loved before. You'll say, this is the same type of founder. And then you'll write a check maybe a little bit quicker than you would have or at a bigger size than you would have. So I, I, I agree with that. I just, my caveat was more around like, <laughs> really good thoughtful investors that are not as prone to those biases that have seen like all the all the terrible things that can oh. happen <laughs> sorry <laughs> no i'm not trying not to laugh but i'm like oh, the really good vc who's not prone to bias biases like that then maybe that's sequoia capital you know there's probably but 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 biases hey, I, I mean <laughs> they're, so, they're back to life right no you're right and 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 especially with the ftx debacle there's uh a bunch of soul searching going on even amongst the most thoughtful VCs that I know. Um, good, good. So yeah, financing trajectory, financing terms, investor quality. Interestingly, all of this stuff coalesces into a portfolio where um, 62% of our positions are backed by what everybody would agree are top tier VCs. Now, is this chicken or the egg? Because sometimes I wonder when you're backed by a Sequoia Capital or you're backed by you know one of these top firms, of course, they they maybe saw something in your in your company, right, that they really liked, but maybe they're also opening doors for you, or maybe some of their relationships or some of their even strategic guidance is helping you succeed. I might be biased, but I want that to be true at least. Okay. Like I don't I don't think it's true in the later stages. I think in the later stages, the companies that are doing really well know how to run themselves and they can open their own doors. But like, I've been an early stage startup creature for most of my startup existence. And I kind of like the idea that there are a handful of folks out there in the world that it can open the right doors and there are good VCs. But um, yeah, for the most part, I'm a little bit skeptical on uh, exactly how much of a flywheel that is. That's fair. That's very yeah. fair. Okay. Okay. So, so, yeah. so right now there's, is there one fund open right now or two funds open right now? We're, we're trying to make it so that there's only ever one fund open so that we don't have like allocation policy type problems. Um, and, and, and the platform is from the investor side. It's for credited investors only. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Accredited and up right now. And, and we're going to do everything we can to democratize it further. But at the moment, accredited and up. 
well, even bringing it to accredited and up is already, you know, democratizing it. And what is the minimum investment on the platform? So what we need is actually an average ticket size of 250,000. Mm -hmm. uh, if we got a million dollar ticket and we got five more hundred thousand dollar tickets, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, we've set our stated minimum at 250,000, but that's only because most people write to whatever the minimum is. And that's kind of a way of enforcing the average that we need. Mm -hmm. uh, but 250 is the minimum. As long as our average ticket size for a group of investors is 250, we can take smaller tickets. Understood. So if you're interested, you have 235K burning a hole in your pocket. Send Dave an email. He might be able to help you out. No, but I mean, that's very, it's a very typical minimum for private equity funds. Uh, so I get it. And if you think about the diversification in your fund, yeah, uh, that that's, that's, you know, cause, cause the thing is a hundred thousand dollar minimum into one thing versus 250 into something into, more into diversified. Yeah. yeah I, I think that, I think that bears thinking about because this is potentially for an investor, a way to get exposure to this asset class that is one and done. And I think yeah. that's, is that even. I mean, I, I guess you, you have to talk your book or I wouldn't respect you, Dave, but is, is there any anything even else out there that's like this where you can write one check and get diversified exposure to, to VC? There are a small set of VC fund of funds that mm. are diversified enough, like that they, they invest in managers across all stages and sectors and they offer a product that can get you close I think, but it, the product itself comes with other drawbacks. For example, um, they're paying preferred prices <laughs> mm -hmm. and we're not. Uh, on a look-through basis, a lot of the managers end up investing in the same companies. And so there's more inherent concentration there. And then the VC fund of funds tend to have two layers of fees, whereas we have one. I was going to say I'm paying two and 20 on my two and 20 or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's pretty painful, and th those probably tend to have pretty high minimums, I would think, anyway. Even if you are getting diversity. Yeah, and and just like the other comment that we were talking when we, when we were going on the thread about access, um, it's not that easy to get into a VC fund of funds if you're a financial advisor uh, and an independent financial advisor in particular that doesn't have access to the VC fund of funds that a bank will put together. Mm -hmm. You've got to be on a platform where those VC fund of funds are. And I think there's only one on one of the major distribution platforms that I'm aware of. It's just not that easy to find. So, so this is truly unique. I mean, this is, and, and that's what I love about this show. The alternative investment podcast is, I mean, I do, I truly do love all alternatives. And I think that alternatives are the best way to protect and grow wealth. Um, but there's a lot of change going on right now and, you know, certain asset classes, and this is one of them where if I fast forward and think, what is venture capital going to look like a decade from now? I'm firmly convinced it's going to look pretty different and there's going to be a more, much more varied, you know, much more diverse capital base. And I, I mean, I think that's a great thing. So Dave, yes, I can't thank, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, you know, kind of giving us a crash course in venture capital, but also you know, t t talking about the the real world um, problems that Vested is solving, you know, obviously it's it's helping improve people's lives who are exiting these companies. But I also just think for independent RAAs, for high net worth, very high net worth, ultra wealthy investors, individual investors, this is just a really cool investment offering. So that being said, 
Where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about Vested? So the custodial platforms that custody most of the private funds were on most of them, uh, mm -hmm. Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, Pershing, and a couple others. Um, I don't know how good the uh, searchability on those various platforms are. So there's always an alternative to come directly to us. Um, the uh, email to use is going to be uh, dave at vested.co. And I will make sure that anybody who comes in from your podcast goes down to our sales team directly. Awesome. And I'll be sure to also link to y'all's website in our show notes. I'm also going to link to another podcast that you recorded with Meb Faber. Oh yeah. Meb Faber, he's a friend of the show. And I did, that was awesome content. Like I heard that and I was just hooked. I was like, I got to get these guys on my show. So um, thanks again. I'll make sure to put all these links on the show notes, uh, including that podcast, including your website. You have a separate page for investors and I'll also include your LinkedIn page. Those are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Dave, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.